Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Welcome back to a wonderful presentation that we're going to have about Generation Z. Now, my kids are Generation Z, and um, yesterday they both put up pictures and video, and I'm not there. So I immediately liked the picture of my daughter. And my daughter immediately, but right after a second, Epsi, Mom, please do not like my pictures. So, of course, I unlike her picture. And then I check with my, my son, and my son says, okay, he wants a lot of views for his video. Could you please share my video with your crowd? So, very different views, both technology-oriented. Uh, and we have somebody with us, Pamela Pavlicek, who has been studying exactly what this Generation Z is doing, how they are using appropriating technology, and what it actually means for them and for us. Um, Pamela has her own company called Change Sciences, which she founded and that she uses to study all these developments. Uh, she also teaches at the Pratt Institute and um, has a book coming out soon, Designing for Happiness. But right now, she will talk to you about Generation Z and what they're up to. Pamela, please join us here. Welcome. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Well, this will be interesting. You guys will get kind of a crick in your neck looking up there. But this talk will be a little different because it's not going to be grim, moral panic about the future of the next generation. There is scary stuff going on there. There are worries. But hopefully you'll come out of this feeling a little bit better about the future. I know I did when I started studying this generation. This happened a couple of years ago. I was, my oldest daughter had wanted to do something that I hadn't done for years. She wanted to go shopping at the mall with her friends. And I was like, ugh, I don't want to go to the mall. I work in tech. I buy everything online. You know, I didn't want to do that. And besides, I have, you know, I'm the yes parent. So I, you guys know what I'm talking about. Like there's a no parent and a yes parent. And the yes parent can, ends up buying a lot of plastic crap when you go out with your kids. And so I didn't want to do it, but I said, okay, I'm going to do it. She wants the freedom. And I let them kind of roam while I politely stalked them through the mall. And when we came back and met for smoothies, um, they were sharing all of their purchases or things they like. They're like, oh, this one goes on my Finsta. This one goes on our group Instagram. Oh, let's kick that to somebody else. Um, oh, this I'm going to text to my mom because I didn't have enough money. And it just went on and on and on until we came home. And so after we were home for a while and my daughter was unpacking all of her stuff, I was like, hey, can I talk to you for a second? Like, that was really interesting. I'd love to, you know, maybe hang out with your friends more and talk to them. And she was like, Mom, don't study me. Because this is what I do. I'm a researcher, and my main focus is really on our emotional relationship with technology. So all the weird feelings that we get using the internet, what our relationship with our devices are, and all that stuff. But I... I thought to myself, well, this is an area worth exploring, is what are young people doing with technology today? And so I went about studying it. And the way I usually do, which is combining a lot of quantitative data 
with qualitative um, interviews and ethnographic data. So what you're going to see here during the course of this talk is a little bit of both. Some of my own research from diaries and interviews um, and some, uh, some research that I've collected from public data sets. And it's going to look something like this. I've modeled this after a young adult post-apocalyptic fiction novel where things go terribly wrong. And actually in those novels it just stays bad. <laughs> but we're going to end up in a better place where we have some new directions about what kids are doing with technology and what possible directions that pushes us into. First of all, why do we care about this generation? I mean, what makes them so special after all? Well, it's a huge generation. I mean, I'm contributing to this huge generation. And it's a little weird when you think about it because Gen X, who are their parents for the most part, is a pretty small generation. But then when you think about millennials as parents and baby boomers as parents, it starts to gradually make more sense that this generation is a quarter of the people on earth, bigger than baby boomers, bigger than millennials. And everyone is gonna be talking about this generation more and more and trying to characterize them and market crap to them and figure them out so we can sell stuff. That's not what this talk is about, but I think this is why they're really important. So maybe at this point you're thinking to yourself, what generation am I? Well, we're going to take a little quiz. <laughs> so what movie, what Disney movie was popular when you were a kid? Which of the four segments are you in? And if you're in segment two over there, you may not even recognize that movie. That's because that's Gen Xers and our parents really could care less about making good movies for us. I'm not bitter or anything like that. So we didn't get a good Disney movie. Um, how did you watch the movie? Then I thought about toys. Which toy characterized your generation? <laughs> and then I thought about music. There's a lot of different choices here. These all look kind of the same, but I guarantee you these are different generations. Or maybe you're a little funkier. How did you listen to music? What was popular when you were a kid? And then finally I looked at what was the vision of the future for each of these generations when they were kids. Here we have 2001 A Space Odyssey where the computer can talk and works like a logical system and things go horribly wrong. And then you have Blade Runner where you have people as um, humanoids and of course things go terribly wrong. Finally we're merged with the computer in the Matrix and things go terribly wrong. And then for the last generation, we have Hunger Games, truly a movie for the last generation where they're hunting each other for the entertainment of the wealthy. And as you can imagine, it's, it's not good. So congratulations if you were in group one, you're a baby boomer, hippies, free love, you invented rock and roll, or at least you think you did. Um, Section two, you're a slacker. You know all the definitions of irony as a Gen Xer. Number three, you are a millennial. And millennials kind of get a bad rap. 
I feel like there's a lot more to millennials than this, but because these are marketing categories more than anything else, you get kind of stereotyped into a role. But look at how Gen Z is getting stereotyped, maybe, if you can look at it. <sighs> yeah, the super achievers. They are expected to be businesslike and rule the world, and they are extremely entrepreneurial. They want to change the world. They have strong motivation for change. They've grown up in a time of extreme economic unrest post 9-11, and they want to see a different world ahead of them. But things are starting to look different, and it's giving a lot of people anxiety. So we have, um, we have friendships looking different. We have families looking different. I miss this family quite a bit right now. Um, <laughs> the whole world is really looking different. And you can imagine, what is the big difference here? Any guys guess? It's mostly about technology. So if you think about, I made sort of a timeline. So off to the far side are the terrible apocalyptic futures that didn't happen, starting with Y2K when they were born, <laughs> most Generation Zs. And then we follow along at current events, technology, and what where they are in their school life. So you can see the technology piece just keeps going and going. I'm pretty happy the whole Mayan end of times thing didn't happen in 2012. We kind of dodged the bullet on that one. And, uh, and it just continues on. In 2017, there's almost too many things to put in there. And they're spending 25% of their lives on screen, that's globally, and probably that's a low estimate because that's from a couple, a study done a couple years ago. So think about that one and let it sit in. About 74% of them are on smartphones and most of those are mobile only or um, at least mobile first. That's where they're spending most of their time. And they're doing everything on their phones. Of course, as you can see from these statistics, the uh, bathroom thing is completely underreported. <laughs> they're probably on their phones way more than that in the bathroom. They have a lot of anxiety about being separated from their phones. So I don't know why we like to do this so much in academic circles, but there are so many studies about putting kids in a lab and then taking their phone away. This is from just one of them, but there are countless ones. And then measuring their stress levels and their heart rate and all these other things to see that, yes, indeed, they have a lot of anxiety about their phones. And we have a lot of anxiety about them being on these screens all the time. We've seen, this is from The Atlantic recently, but you just have to look at pretty much the news every single day and you'll see like, oh, you know, Screens are ruining a generation. Kids are lazy. They're not, um, you know, they're not able to have eye contact. They're not looking at each other. It's really, really upsetting to the grown-ups, and kids know this too. There, this is from one of our diaries where kids feel like they're addicted to their phones all the time, How and you survive? even their oh, most popular videos. In a world without touch screens. Uh, how do you read more? In a world where you couldn't show everyone what you're doing all the time.
I'm scared, man. Nothing makes sense anymore. Well, it's like Gandhi always said. We have nothing to fear but fear itself. Uh, you mean Roosevelt? No, I'm pretty sure that was Gandhi. Well, we'll just have to see what Wikipedia has to say about it then. Who's Wikipedia? Oh my god. <laughs> if Wikipedia doesn't exist, then how are we supposed to prove people wrong? Well, I guess we'll just have to assume that I'm right. No, 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 no. Okay, so, so great. That's kind of where we're at right now with technology is that kids are on it a lot. They're anxious. We're anxious. Where does that leave us for the future? What are the future directions that Gen Z are going to take us in? So I've kind of found these five areas to be the critical areas where we can see glimpses of what we might want the future of technology to be through the lens of these young kids. So let's start with community first. And this is something that we bemoan a lot. We say, oh, kids don't have a place to hang out anymore. They don't, they don't meet up in person. They're not, you know, um, wandering around the neighborhood as they used to. But of course, they're hanging out online. Now, you guys may be familiar with Twitch. The first time I encountered it a couple years ago was through um, a diary study with my first diary study with tweens. And I thought to myself, well, that's really weird. Like, at least back in my day, I played the games myself. I didn't watch other people playing the games. But in fact, it's not really about watching people play the games. It's about community. Even the little... This is these, the little kids have community. This is Club Penguin, which shut down last May, but it looked like this for 10 years. Nobody pays attention to their communities, and I don't even know who all these penguins are. Probably half of them aren't kids, so now we're going back to Jamie's talk again with, with a dark net and pedophiles and horrible things. But anyway, they are hanging out online, and... As you can see, I mean, they've been touted as sort of the early adopters for social media. They're on all the channels all the time, um, less so Facebook, luckily for them, than anything else. But what I think we don't talk about as much is that their community is not just their friends or their school, but in fact, it's global. They are making friends in other countries, more so than we did when we were kids when maybe we had like a pen pal who we wrote to once or something like that or maybe we we met somebody online and you know an old chat room and we never really knew that much about them here they're making real connections over video chat with other people and getting a glimpse of their reality in that deep way they're participating in adult conversations this is a twitter map of ferguson in 2014 this probably marks maybe the first time that kids actually entered into the same conversation about the news as adults and now that happens all the time and we kind of take for granted that kids are just going to catch up and get it and be there when in fact they're still kids and that's reshaping the tone of their conversations, the kinds of conversations they have, the kind of level of understanding of events that they've had in new ways. Now, they're still very much interested in forging those kind of um, close ties within their own community and their family. A lot of parents were, in, in our study, 
commented on they're getting a new view of their kids through their children's eyes. But for the most part, they're still looking at what's happening online and social media and, and communities and saying to themselves, you know, if I had to trade all of my online friends for one real life friend, I would. I think that's astonishing. So real life is still a thing. Kids still want to relate to each other in person. They're still going to make eye contact. They're still going to have conversations. But what's the takeaway for us? We need to design for authentic connection. What does that mean? That means not just connecting us to each other over social media, but instead really thinking about if we're working in tech, what does it mean to forge a strong relationship? And we can learn from urban design that a lot of that is weak ties. There's been a lot of studies of mixed blocks where there are stores and apartments and lots going on and that's where people want to be and that's where people achieve well-being and they're happier. We need to make sure we bring that in. There's been lots of research about what makes a strong relationship. One thing is deep meaningful conversations that have all the aspects of human to human conversation, which is pauses and um, unknowns and length of time and not just skimming on the surface or depositing a comment and leaving. So I think there's a lot that we see in what Gen Z is doing that we can bring over that will benefit everyone as far as community goes. Now, a lot's been made of um, the anonymous communities. I know that if you're thinking about dark social, you probably, depending on your generation, this is probably what you get in your head. <laughs> and there is a lot of bullying online. That's almost everyone is, has experienced some of that. And it's going on in more subtle and unique ways online, of course, too. I think what kids are realizing is that anonymity brings on a lot of kind of what we all learned in the 90s with like IRC chat, if you've been around long enough to remember that, is that anonymity brings out some bad behaviors. So we saw the downfall of Yikyat already this year. And while it lets kids experiment with their identity, that's they're really not looking at it as a community feature, but more of a way that they can express themselves. So let's look at identity. A big aspect that Gen Z is playing around with because they're tweens and teens especially, is they're experimenting with their identity. We do this all the time in real life, of course, right? We have a different uh, personality that we show for work versus family versus friends. We adopt gaming avatars such as this one. Microsoft did a good job on the new Xbox avatars, which you see here. Um, but Gen Z's take it to a new level. They have Instagrams, and they have Finstagrams, and they have multiple Instagrams with their pets, with groups, with people. They have the real Instagram where they're fake and the fake Instagram where they're real. They're constantly monitoring and pruning and playing around with these identities over and over again. And the core thing that really I took away from that is that we need to think more broadly about identity and selfhood. So the impulse of, say, Facebook and any consumer-based technology is to pin you down to one personality. Mark Zuckerberg's even said that. He's like, 
when you're on Facebook, a goal for Facebook is to reduce phoniness, to let you express your true identity and everyone will be transparent. We've heard that word a lot today and up front. But guess what? The latest psychological research about selfhood is not that at all. There have been longitudinal studies from age 14 to 64 that kind of dispute this idea that we even have a core personality because it can change so much. Part of the latest research in selfhood is that we experiment with identity through storytelling. So by giving over our memory to VR, to Facebook or things like that, actually takes away some of our ability to create our identity online. And so I think what we're seeing in these kids has, a, again, a wider relevance for all of us is that we need our identities to be flexible. We want systems that don't make us a cliche of ourselves, always pinned to what we did before or what the average people, the average of all people do. We want to be weird and quirky and make interesting mistakes because that's what humans do. And that's what we have not figured out yet in design. So this leads us to privacy, though, and you think to yourself, well, kids, they're posting all kinds of stuff. Are they even really worried about this? Well, they are in a couple different ways. One way they're worried about it is that they are trying to hide from their parents and teachers. It's plain and simple. I mean, we all did it when we were kids, right? You don't ever want your parents to know what you're doing. You don't want your teachers to know what you're doing. And now it's at a higher risk because everything is online. So they're constantly playing with privacy for that. And they're figuring out ways to go against the grown-ups, like sneaking smartwatches into school because phones aren't allowed anymore. And you'll see a lot of older technologies like this because they always inherit the crappy technologies, whatever, whatever is around, and they try to make it work for them and adjust it. About 70% admit to hiding activities online. This is a pretty good generation. We often complain that they're not having enough sex, they're not doing drugs, they're not drinking, they're not smoking. We think, oh, they're not growing up fast enough. They're not, you know, coming through those rites of passage again. You know, as a parent, I'm, I really, I'm willing to let those go. I don't really care about those as rites of passage. But what is still happening is they're still trying to hide stuff online. Even the littlest ones, are hiding. This is from one of my uh, diary study interview participants, and she admitted to hiding her videos way many screens back on her iPad so her parents wouldn't find out that she was watching videos, which seems adorably cute to me. Um, this number is really astonishing. This came out of a study last year. 81% of kids are trying to figure out privacy settings, and I can empathize with them because Privacy settings really suck. They don't work. They're hard to wade through. They don't exist. They're not in your favor. You're opting in to whatever. You don't even know what it is. So we all experience that, that we want to be able to adapt our privacy, but we're not really able to do that. And so I think what this means for the future of privacy is that we need to default to it. We need to reset our defaults. All of our defaults are set to the most public possible. Share with everything. Can you share with this other app? Can we share with a third party? Can we share with this? Can we share with that? Oh, you already signed up. We're going to update and opt you into more things. 
Instead, if we were following the lead of the Zs, we would scale back on all that stuff and set privacy as our default. And I think that's very wise. Second to last, we're gonna look at communication. So we know that not only are we texting for everything, everywhere, all the time, we're texting in our own house, we are using voice. Gen Zs were the early adopters of this. They feel very comfortable talking to their computers and their devices at all times. They don't like email. We already know this. They're only, you know, they only have email so they can download apps, basically. I don't know why it's still tied to that either. Um, and they're instead gravitating towards other ways of communication. Video chat is incredibly popular, and there's tons of new, really interesting group video chat apps out there that came up again and again, like Airtime, and, um, and of course, kids are still using Google Hangouts and stuff like that, um, and Uvu. Um, they're communicating more with images than ever before, and I think that's going to continue where words maybe are scaled back a bit and images and video less, although I see plenty of, of writing happening. And but what's more interesting than the formats that they're using and the apps that they're using and what's going to be the next cool app is the kinds of ways they're communicating. This is the thing we don't really look for. When we're looking at trends, we're always thinking about like, oh, what's the hot new app? What's the thing that the kids are doing that's going to be the next cool disruption? But in fact, a lot of what they're doing is just the kind of meaningful communication that we wish we all had. Sometimes it's you don't have anything to say, especially if you're a teenager. You really don't have a lot to say. You just want to be connected, and you want your communication to support that. You want to be able to convey a mood. Right now, it's pretty rudimentary how we have to do that, and they're pretty ingenious at adapting what we have towards that. I was really astonished that so many of them wanted to do storytelling. And so a lot of kids, they're not on Facebook, so they're not really familiar with memories, but submitted things like time hop. And I thought to myself, well, that's weird. How far back can you hop? But it wasn't really about the memory itself. It was about the storytelling aspect of it. What we've shown with communication is this kind of blend between physical and digital is how they want to communicate because they're not seeing these as two separate states of being. We still tend to. We still tend to think the online world is something we need to minimize, diminish. It needs to be in the background. It's too much of our attention. And that offline is intrinsically good. And everything that's offline is good, no matter what it is, even if it's the most boring thing in the world, that's good because we're offline. But in fact, for these kids, they want to merge the two together, and they already recognize that that's what we are doing already when we do this, that these two experiences of online and offline aren't separate. If you put down your phone and go for a walk in the woods, you really haven't left your smartphone behind because you're thinking the whole time of, wouldn't this be a great picture that I could send to somebody? Couldn't I text this to somebody? Oh, I wish I had my maps so I knew what was ahead of me. I, maybe there's a Pokemon <laughs> behind that tree that I can get. Our whole experience of reality is shaped by technology. And so they recognize that there's no essential difference between the two. And so I think where we're going with communication, if Gen Z is any indicator, is 
meaningful participation, not just endlessly scrolling through our feeds, not just texting each other a few cutesy quips or talking to Alexa and pranking her, which is like the favorite kid activity in ever. Like they love that. Um, <laughs> maybe that one will stay, but it's really finding ways to have some kind of meaningful engagement. And one way to do that is with creativity. And a lot of the kids in my study talked about creativity. It's the kind of thing where we think, ah, you know, kids these days, they're just not bored enough. If only they were bored more often, they would be more creative, but they're always like on their screens all the time. So how can they possibly be creative? But I didn't see that. I think kids still got bored all the time. They're just bored in a different way. <laughs> and they're moving fluidly between these two worlds. Oh, wait. <laughs> you guys remember that sound? <laughs> they don't even know that. <laughs> they're, this is a screen from, I had a group of kids. I do some play labs with kids. And one of our projects, we had them moving from between, we had a bunch of iPads and screens in the room and we had a bunch of toys and we just were like, go play. And they integrated everything into their game. Toka Boca, the dolls, the play kitchen, blocks. It was all of a piece. There was no difference. So that's one aspect of it. And the creativity doesn't happen off screen. They're making things on their screens that are highly creative, they are making gifts for each other, but they're experimenting with ways to use technology creatively, to tell their own stories. And that's a very human impulse. That doesn't change whether you're a kid or a teenager or an elderly person or just like all of us, kind of old, um, <laughs> that what this means for creativity is that we need to focus on rich experience. Right now, our experience of screens is pretty flat. It's pretty visual. There's no other senses involved. There's not a lot of emotion. It's designed for productivity and efficiency and really not much else. And so we, even as much as we try to innovate, there's still that kind of flatness to it. The last thing I'm going to talk about, just as a bonus, because I work with designers a lot, is the interface itself, because I saw a lot of interesting things here. I think when we talk about youth, one thing we all assume is that kids know how to do everything. I'm sure you've been in meetings like that, like the old people don't know, they'll never get it, but who cares, they're not our market anyway, even though they have all the money. I don't know why those conversations happen, but they do. Um, <laughs> and the young kids, they'll always know what exactly to do because they're great at technology. Well, it, partly they are. I mean, one thing that they do is they use technology together. So what I've seen in my observational research is there's kind of this co-use curve. When kids are really young, they spend a lot of time on screen together, learning things together, showing each other. And then as once you get into about your 20s, you stop doing that because you don't want to look dumb or maybe you look things up on the internet instead of sharing them with another person or maybe you feel like you know what you're doing and so that kind of co-use doesn't happen again and you get a little uptick when when people are older but because that happens kids use technology really idiosyncratically they use it in weird ways and ways we didn't intend 
Um, I've had kids who, instead of saving songs on Spotify, bookmarked a hundred different pages in Safari with their favorite songs on YouTube, and then were sad when those were taken away with an iOS update. <laughs> uh, we never intended that. Of course, everyone does this, right? We're all a little weird in how we use technology. And unless you're a researcher and you're watching people use technology all the time, it probably doesn't register on your radar. You just think that people are doing it right, but <laughs> they're really not. And kids are not successful at a lot of the things they're doing. They're more successful on e-commerce sites than any of the sites they should actually be using, like education and nonprofit sites. Part of that is the design. Part of that is because we, again, forget we don't include kids in the groups that we're designing for because A, we either assume that they can already do everything or we don't, we don't even think that they will be using it. So I think, you know, we make all these assumptions about kids that, or maybe we're just not thinking of them at all. We're kind of at two ends of the spectrum. The other thing going on with kids that is a bit different from the rest of us is they're really multi-screening like more than just a couple screens they're all over the place they have really short attention spans like all of us do right now and they know that they're distracted here's a favorite video blogger uh third pew talking about all of these distractions that come in the form of social networks they keep making more don't they think i have a life i mean i can't disagree but that doesn't mean that they should just be rubbing it in all the time facebook twitter youtube tumblr vine instagram pinterest it's like a full-time job a job that distracts me from doing the things that would eventually get me an actual job sorry son daddy can't play catch right now daddy's working on this heck of cool tweet stupid kid think i got time for games hashtag i don't have a phone in my hands right now or a son, keep forgetting, I'm insane. Lol. One thing that used to take up so much of my time was texting. I hate texting uh, now. Half the time you just text it. Okay, so they also, they're distracted. They're idiosyncratic. They don't always know what they're doing. They also have really poor ergonomics. Um, they don't have any storage because they have the oldest devices you've ever seen. All their devices are cracked. Most of them have fallen into the toilet because of the whole bathroom thing. Um, so they're using the worst technology in the house. So what are then the implications for us when we're designing technology and we think of this? Well, I think it points the way towards designing for inclusion. So we haven't had too many talks on this today, but a lot of the conferences I'm at, we're talking a lot about accessibility and inclusion, and we're thinking about people who are differently abled. But sometimes we don't think about that there's a spectrum of access to technology, the kind of technology you're using, the skill levels you have, the gaps in your knowledge with technology. Inclusive design actually brings us around to those folks as well. And so that's the last aspect that Generation Z points us to. So I've recapped the whole thing here in emojis for you guys, just in case you were thinking you needed a refresh on all of it. And I guess the big message here is that I, we shouldn't be scared of teens losing their minds like zombies to smartphones or the dark net or these other things. We need to be wary of that. But I think what I've seen with young kids today is that they actually are not so different from anyone else. They want all the same things that we want out of life. And we're not designing that in our technology yet. And that's 
where we need to be headed next. Thank you very much. Do you want to take questions? Let me see. We only have five more minutes for questions. And one thing I wanted to ask is, yeah. you're working of you've been working on this book, Designing for Happiness. Yes. Uh, can you describe how you can design? What, what design brings about happiness? What, what are you thinking of there? Yeah, I think that in design we think a lot about ease of use. We think a lot about making things sort of invisible. And then at the other end of the spectrum, we think about delight. And I don't think happiness is any of those things, actually. So we know a lot about happiness and the sense of well-being. Countries are using it as a benchmark for their success um, in tandem with the GDP or as a replacement for it. Psychology has studied, has flipped to study positive psychology. And so the book talks about, like, instead of having a problem focus for design, what if we had a possibility focus? What if we looked at the things that contribute to well-being? and then decided to use that as our, as our measurement and our way forward for design. And if, there's, if there would be one really practical example or tip, like if you want to design for happiness, this you can do. This, this one thing you can do, which already will have an effect. Yeah, one thing you can do is design humble systems. Right now, we're not doing that. We have disruptive innovation. We want to figure people out and define them. We want to um, change their lives, and we're really proud of this. And we have mostly, you know, engineers doing this, and a not a very diverse group of engineers at that doing this. We have so much pride and arrogance, and I think if we designed our systems for humility, that to know what they don't know, that that would take us forward in the right direction. Thank you. Just looking at room, is there one, two really urgent questions? Yes, please. Uh, can you say something more about augmented reality and your future? Okay, well, I do think that saw a lot of kids and the Pokemon Go craze was going on during some of this research and kids were adopting that. Um, I think that for a large part, kids have a weird imagination about technology. So some of the studies I did is I had them like um, draw what they thought the future was going to be. And AR was never in it, or VR wasn't in it. It was actually um, life with you know, technology sort of in, in the background <laughs> for most of them. Or it was completely apocalyptic, and there were like rockets and bombs and robot monsters and things like that. <laughs> thank you so much. Okay, thank, thank you. you.